around verse 6, but perhaps by review we'll actually read uh, the first five verses, um, simply because the chapter itself presents one unified argument, and if we leave any of it behind, we we kind of miss what's happening in the rest of chapter 8. So I will open us up in prayer, and then we will begin uh, reading in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this time. We thank you for the opportunity to come and to reflect on your word, to sharpen our understanding of what you have given to us and who you are and the way you work in the world. This is a privilege, and with the psalmist we say that your word is sweeter than honey to our mouth, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. And this word truly is our life. We thank you for it. We thank you for the opportunity to study it together, uh, that we might not do it merely in isolation, but with the encouragement of those around us. So we thank you as well for the body this morning. We pray that you would guide our thinking, and we pray that the meditation of our heart and the words of our mouths would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, I will read in, uh, starting in verse 1 and just make a couple very brief comments along the way for review. Uh, again, we left off last week with the end of verse 5, uh, so we'll just read those few short verses here. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply And go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Now here is really the main commandment that Moses is giving Israel that's going to inform not only their reflections about their past experiences, but also how they are going to live going forward. Remember, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you or afflict you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled or afflicted you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord." That is the lesson they were to learn as they think back over their time in the wilderness. And just as the Lord tested them that he might know what was in their heart, their testing was so that they might know something about the Lord. Verse 4, your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. And here's what they are to know about the Lord. Know then in your heart, and there's the balance, right? The Lord was testing them to know what was in their heart. Now they are to know with their heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. He disciplined them in his fatherly care, and God sustains them through that discipline if they are obedient to the command, which is again bringing us back to verse Three, man does not live by bread alone. He lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We must rely upon God's mouth if we are to live and if that discipline is to do us good. So the Lord does sustain through the discipline, 
But again, not everyone was sustained, as Paul said. With most of them, he was not well pleased. And by most, I mean all but two. Caleb and Jacob made it. The, uh, J- uh, not Jacob. Uh, Joshua. Thank you. Uh, they, didn't make, they made it. The others didn't. So that picks us up then to verse 6, where we are this morning, which continues Moses' argument. And in fact, this is kind of Moses' conclusion. So we we detailed all of those things last week. But now in verse 6, Moses concludes what Israel is to do going forward. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. So they are to obey the commandments, which is described or elaborated on as this. By walking in his ways... And by fearing him, walking in his ways gives this wonderful picture of the Lord having gone ahead of us in the way. The Lord doesn't ask anything of us that he himself is not prepared to do or that he has not already done. That's really a magnificent thought if you think about it. Uh, Paul elaborates on this wonderfully in Philippians chapter 2. The author of Hebrews mentions it as well. Well, you're uh, turning to Philippians 2. I'll read Hebrews 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now here's this in Hebrews 12:3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So there the Lord is pictured as the one who has trodden the path before us as we saw this morning if they've called the master Beelzebub what are they going to do to you Uh, I am here and receive the same treatment that you are going to receive Paul in Philippians 2 uses Christ Christ's example as the model we are to follow so Philippians 2 starting in verse 3 do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That example of Christ's humility, which is even the title in the ESV for that section, right? Christ's example of humility. That is the example we're to follow. Christ, once again, commands of us only what he himself is willing to do. And that is given picture to, in Deuteronomy 8, as walking in his ways. Not merely the ways the Lord has commanded, but the ways that he himself goes. We are to follow in his footsteps, as it were. The second element of what it looks like to keep the commandment of the Lord your God 
One is by walking in his ways, the other is by fearing him. Uh, Specifically, we are to fear God lest we drift away. There is a true irony in the Christian faith, you might even call it a paradox, where fearing the Lord is what keeps us in the realm of obedience to the Lord by which we no longer need to fear the Lord. Um, It's fearing the Lord keeps us in a spot of safety where what lies beyond is no longer a threat to us, therefore we needn't fear it. But the way we avoid from having to fear the wrath of the Lord is by fearing the wrath of the Lord. Um, Riddle that one a little bit. Uh, Anyway, so, uh, by walking in his ways and by fearing him. But Israel is uh, is told to keep the commandments of the Lord for a reason. So verse 6 You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Why? Verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Let's read that backwards. And we'll see the gospel logic jump off the page. Verse 7. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Therefore... Verse 6, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. Because the Lord is doing you good, respond to the Lord by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Summarized as keeping the commandments. Because the Lord does good, you, in response, do good. So there again is gospel logic. The Lord's work goes before and motivates our obedience and our fear. But how exactly does that work? Well, a couple of ways. First, what the Lord does ought to produce in us a sense of gratitude. And it ought to motivate our faith. If he's done good in the past, surely he will again in the future. But the theme of Deuteronomy 8 is that God's goodness motivates our need for diligence against spiritual apathy, indifference, or even hostility. Because the Lord has done us good, we respond to that by increasing our spiritual diligence, not growing lax in it. That's what's happening in Deuteronomy 8. Because the Lord has done you good, do not grow weary, do not grow heavy-hearted, do not grow faint-eyed, grow diligent in your walk with the Lord, because he is doing you good. So rather than ease or comfort, the material blessing that the Lord is about to shower on the people should produce a certain amount of spiritual angst. Because there's a tremendous amount of danger in the blessing that the Lord is going to give his people. In this passage, the warning is only implicit. We're likely not going to make it to the end of chapter 8 this morning. But let's jump to the end of chapter 8 where the warning becomes explicit. Which is in verses 19 and 20. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord made makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
That happens once they're in the land and after they've received the good things from the Lord. So in these verses here, in verses 5, 6, and 7, the warning is implicit. It becomes explicit by the end of the chapter. But notice what happens as Moses builds that case for the need for spiritual diligence. So verse 7, the Lord is your God is bringing you into a good land and now that goodness of the land is elaborated on in five stanzas we might say a land of brooks of water of fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and hills spontaneous production almost there the land just oozes water it gushes forth water as compared to the desert you've been Walking in, verse 8, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will not eat bread without, with a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you will dig copper. That is a tremendously wonderful land. The fivefold description has a twofold effect, I think. So, five different times it says, a land of, but then I think there are two reasons it's given that way. One is so that we will not think God's rewards are worthless. Our spiritual diligence is worth every effort of energy we put into it, it's worth the work. And the Lord tries to motivate Israel into that work by describing the goodness of the land that they are about to receive. Also, this land is a wonderful blessing. And what we'll see in the next couple, pa- next couple verses is that that material blessing presents a tremendous spiritual danger for which they need to be ready. Uh, but two things here. Why does the land get described in this particular way? First, uh, verse 7, the last half of it, shows that the land contrasts to the desert by its abundant resource of natural water. Rain is never mentioned, oddly enough. It's all water that comes from the ground. Second thing, in verse 8, what that well-watered land is capable of producing all sorts of wheat and barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olives, uh, olive trees, and honey. A wonderfully uh, productive land. And then it ends in verse 9, which is how Israel will be able to react to all of that produce. You will not eat in scarcity, and you will not lack anything. But then he ends again with one more natural resource that leads not into multiplication of livestock or people, but is a source of wealth in and of itself. The stones, you will get iron, and whose hills you can dig copper. Another way it could be organized is verse 7, shows that the land is capable of producing, verse 8, that the land does produce, and what Israel will be able to do in the land, which is you will be able to eat in the land, and you'll be able to mine precious materials out of it. Truth be told, Moses seems to exaggerate just a little bit, uh, especially on the last note. Now, I'll give you a couple different instances where Moses exaggerates, but I'll tell you why he does it, too. Verse 7, 
a land of brooks of water. Uh, literally could be translated wadis of water. A wadi is a seasonal stream bed. If, uh, for those of you who have an agrarian background, you'll remember that in the spring, the creeks were usually pretty wet. By the fall, and as we approached winter, they were usually lower, if not dry. What happens in Israel is they have a wet season. And when that wet season comes, water comes down on the hills. And where does water go once it hits a hill but down, right? And so it would go down. It would fill these wadis. They'd fill up with water. It'd be a lush and green place. By the end of the season, they'd be bone dry, not a drop in them. And the way you'd have to retrieve water is through cisterns and wells that were dug in strategic locations. What this is saying, though, is those wadis, always full of water, just gushing forth water, always there. Not true to reality, necessarily, uh, but Moses is painting a specific picture. So brooks of water, fountains and springs, and again, Israel is filled with springs all over the place, uh, flowing out of the valleys and the hills. So no matter where you are, it seems as though you can't get away from the water in the place. It is, at locations, quite productive, uh, though where you can harvest wheat and barley uh, varies. Vines don't always grow everywhere. In fact, in the southern part of Israel, it can be quite dry, and it's pretty much just grazing ground at best. Up north, uh, there is a location in Israel where they can harvest alfalfa every three weeks. We're lucky to get three, maybe four cuttings a year. They harvest it every three weeks. That's remarkable. So tremendous productivity. But the last line, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. It gives the picture of just walking up to a rock with a hammer, hitting it, and pulling out the iron that's there. Uh, Copper seems to be readily available according to this description, but the fact is there's very little indication that there has ever been much iron or especially copper mined from the land of Israel. What is going on in this text? What is Moses doing? Well, remember that Moses authored Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is the picture of Eden. What's in Eden? Lots of water. Lots of food for eating. Precious materials. That's what's there. Moses is painting the land there to enter as an Eden. The new Eden. The place where God walks with man and man dwells in fellowship with God. That's what Israel is. Moses is contrasting this to the desert. True. But he's doing more than that. He's saying, you are entering a paradise. And all of those things that are maybe exaggerations aren't necessarily going to be exaggerations if you actually obey the voice of the Lord. He's the one who turns desert into streams and well-watered places into desert. He can do this sort of thing. It's very unusual for Israel to go three and a half years with no drop of water and no dew. But guess what? It happened, right? Well, the opposite If that's judgment, the opposite can happen in blessing. Moses is giving Israel a picture of what life could be, not necessarily as it's going to be by default once they cross into the border. And that's important because material blessing is that. It is a blessing and one that comes um, as Israel follows the Lord. That is not the gospel. This is not the prosperity gospel, but Israel did have 
more of that than what we are certainly promised. So Moses is showing that Israel will lack nothing and she will be entering a sort of paradise. The other thing is he pictures this as a paradise as he contrasts it to the desert. But isn't that a, partly what makes the wilderness so valuable? It's the ugliness and the scarcity and the aridity of the desert that makes Eden and Canaan so wonderful. It's the difficulties they had to go through that make the reward so sweet. Without empty bellies, how satisfying is a full belly? Right? My grandpa always said, in heaven, we're going to be just a little bit hungry so we know when it's time to eat the strawberries. I don't know if he's right, but the, there's something to the point, though, of the misery we experience now should make the reward all the better. The land of abundance is good because the place we've been is dry. Where God had famished, he will fatten. And where we only had this manna to look at, all sorts of food that you've been craving for years, that will be there. Any questions through verse 9 or thoughts, comments? Yeah, so the, the question is, when do these things uh, take on more of a spiritual truth? Um, I guess I would respond that everything is a good spiritual lesson if we have our eyes open. Uh, what happens to Israel physically is, the, the fancy word for it is typology, right? It's a type of what happens for us. The difference is uh, we don't experience it physically the way they did, we are to learn the lesson spiritually, which is what the New Testament authors continually point us to. Great. Anything else? Okay. Verse 10. Enjoying the future land. I, if I were making the paragraph breaks, I would have broken between 9 and 10. They're not inspired, neither am I, so take your pick. Verse 10. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Moses is not only predicting here what Israel is about to experience, he sort of commands what Israel is to do once they're in the land. Israel is meant to enjoy what God gives her. When she goes to Canaan, she is supposed to eat. She is supposed to be full. And she is supposed to bless the Lord her God. All three of those things are supposed to go together at one time. So because Israel was meant to eat and be satisfied, she is also meant to bless the Lord for the good land he has given. If she refrains from eating and being full, it gives less reason for blessing the Lord. 
Not only that, but abstaining from what the Lord has given her is sort of a renunciation of the goodness of what the Lord has given her. Um, To say, yep, this is all here. I'm not going to dip toe into it. I'm going to be stingy with how I eat and how full I allow myself to get. That can sound very pious. But the fact of the matter is it kind of denies what the Lord has been driving Israel to through the last 40 years. And so I kind of take from that that in the spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving, uh, we are supposed to be satisfied by what the Lord does give to us. We're supposed to enjoy what the Lord has given. Being stingy for stinginess' sake, or for piety, or for guilt, or for any other reason, it limits our enjoyment of God's gifts, and it limits our thanksgiving. So Paul in 1 Timothy gives us that sort of thing. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul kind of puts the kibosh on those who would live an austere lifestyle simply for its own sake. So First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. God created foods and marriage as two examples of the things God intended us to enjoy. If we are taught otherwise, Paul calls it a teaching of demons. Seems pretty drastic, doesn't it? But there it is. Verse 4, For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. We are supposed to enjoy the good things God gives. Back to verse 10 of Deuteronomy 8. You shall eat, and you shall be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. If Israel works for it, they are to know the Lord gave it. If they received it by inheritance, they are to know the Lord gave it. Either way, enjoy the good land and bless the Lord. That's more than merely a concession for Israel Since all three of those verbs are the exact same form of verb, I take all of them to go in the same spirit as you shall bless the Lord. Is that a commandment or isn't it, do you think? Because the other two that come before it are the exact same thing. So all of that, of course, must be placed in proper context. Um, We are to enjoy what the Lord gives. But Paul, again in Philippians, chapter 3, verses 8 to 11, puts a little bit of that in perspective for us. So Philippians 3, verse 8. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, why would he do all of that? Why would he count them as rubbish in order to gain Christ? And what does that mean? Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The Lord has given us wonderful things, especially in our part of the world, hasn't he? We live in a place of outstanding abundance. And I think the Lord commands, enjoy that. I gave that to you. Don't be stingy with it. Be generous. Don't think you earned it. I gave it to you. Don't withhold yourself from the good things I have given. But, on the other hand, our enjoyment of stuff must not hinder our obedience and it must be placed in subjection to our pursuit of righteousness, especially our pursuit of the knowledge of Christ and his power. The value that Paul gives to material things is rubbish. But he also says in 1 Timothy, enjoy them. Enjoy the rubbish. Enjoy the junk God gives you. Right? Both of those things are there. But, there's also this, enjoy the rubbish, but don't let that rubbish throw you off spiritually. All of this is to be lost or forfeited or neglected or jettisoned or cast aside, whatever it might be, if this in any way hinders you from knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. All of that stuff is good stuff because God gave it all. God created everything, but everything is to be lost for the sake of knowing Christ. So the value of rubbish versus the value of knowing Christ. One is rubbish, the other incalculably valuable. It cannot be fathomed. What Christ is and his power is worth losing everything, but... What we have, Paul says, enjoy. Moses says, enjoy. Now, while Scripture certainly gives us many more warnings about the dangers of possessions, there are a few glimpses here and there now that guard us from thinking that the Lord is laying snares before our feet intentionally uh, as only snares, right? So while material blessing presents a potential snare for us, that does not mean it is not good in and of itself. Now, we are still to enjoy them. But there is the warning there as well. So Moses continues now back in Deuteronomy 8, verse 11. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God, 
by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. As they are enjoying the abundance of the gifted land, Israel is to guard themselves against drifting away from the Lord. Never in Deuteronomy do the nations present a threat to Israel's well-being except as storehouses of idolatry. If you let them live, they will lead you into idolatry. If you let them remain in the land, they will lead you into idolatry. So there is certainly a risk posed by them. But let's say, hypothetically, Israel enters the land and does a spectacular job of casting out the nations. Who then becomes Israel's worst enemy? It's not those who are outside her border. The Canaanites pose a threat. Never once in Deuteronomy do the nations outside Canaan pose a threat. Don't worry about them. You worry about yourself. You and your own deceptive heart are going to cause you more problems than the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians or any other nation out there. You will be your own worst enemy. Therefore, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Now, their drifting here is described as, forgetting the Lord is described as, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes. So while earlier on, keeping the commandments in verse 6, keeping the commandments was by walking in his ways and fearing him, now forgetting the Lord is by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes. In this way, forgetting the Lord is the same as not keeping the commandments. They're not different things. Um, By not keeping. So if we are not keeping the commandments, it's not merely a sign that we've drifted away. It's the same thing. Not keeping the commandments is forgetting. Just in the same way as keeping the commandments is walking in his ways and fearing him. Uh, There's not really a separation between those two things. Now this, again, is the opposite of knowledge. We talked about knowledge last week. The Lord is looking to know something about Israel, know what was in Israel's heart, whether they would keep his commandments or not. Israel is to know with her heart that the the Lord disciplines them as a man does his son. This forgetting here is the opposite. It doesn't mean a lack of cognitive information. It means failing to take into consideration the fact of the Lord. Just simply act like he's not there. We have uh, illustrations or pictures of that in Psalm 10 and Psalm 14, where we have that exact same thing. Back in the day, there was no such thing as a theoretical atheist. They all believed that some sort of divine being or beings existed. But there are still people like are found in Psalm 10, verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Which is simply to say, I'm not going to take God 
into consideration as a factor when I make my decisions. I'm going to act as though he's not there. And he doesn't think any other way. Psalm 14, verse 1. We all know this one. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. That is what Moses is warning Israel from becoming. Don't become that. Rather, you take care lest you begin to act like the Lord isn't the central factor in everything that you have and everything that you will face. He is the one thing you need to consider. Don't become the Psalm 14.1. Don't become the Psalm 10.4. Now Moses, in the next couple of verses here, elaborates on the pathway that they will take that will result in their forgetting. So starting in verse 12 now, Deuteronomy 8. Lest, when you have eaten and are full... And have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, which the Lord intends to do for Israel. He intends to shower them with all those blessings. Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Israel goes in, This is what's going to happen. She'll eat and be full, have good houses, flocks multiply, gold and silver multiply. Everything you have is prospering in your hand. Take care, lest when that happens, your heart be lifted up. Now famine had led to grumbling and despair in the wilderness. Here, abundance will yield arrogance and pride. Your heart be lifted up. When pride gains a foothold, we dislodge ourselves from the reality that we are dependent on the Lord and we forget him because we think we have become something and we forget that everything we are and everything we have is because of grace. That's the central thing we are to keep in mind. Who we are means very little. Who God is means everything. And notice how Moses describes the Lord right after he tells Israel, in your pride, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord... Look how Moses describes the Lord as motivation for why Israel should not forget who he is. Starting at the end of verse 14. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Who brought you, out, who brought you water out of the flinty rock. Who led you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know. A fourfold description of the showered abundance of God's grace over Israel throughout her history. Throughout all of her challenges, God was there. God made them who they were. And because God is who he is, Israel is supposed to learn who she is. 
You are the one who lives not by bread alone. You don't live by the gold and silver that is multiplied in your pocket. You don't live by the herds that are multiplying in spades out in the fields. You don't live by the wheat and the barley. You don't live by the copper and the iron. You live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's powerful. When all of these things become abundant, don't forget the one whose mouth you live by and whose hand feeds you. So it's no coincidence then that the end of verse 16 circles back around to verses 2 and 3. So verse 16, Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble or afflict you and test you to do you good in the end. Now I think verse 16 circles back to verses 2 and 3 for two reasons. First, the lessons learned in famine are supposed to guide Israel in abundance. And isn't it amazing how the Lord can use a lesson in famine that is applicable in, fa- in abundance? That's wisdom. But that's exactly what the Lord does. The lesson in verse 3, as we just said, was that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Abundance in the land will not lead to life if they receive it thanklessly, or if they refuse to receive it. It does not lead to land. Or if they take credit and say, I have achieved what I have achieved on my own, which is amazing. Verse 17 Uh, Let's read verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, that's what it means for uh, the heart to be lifted up in verse 14. So your heart is lifted up in verse 14, but now verse 17 explains what that means. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. So, uh, Israel will be as dependent on God for provision in Canaan as she was in the wilderness. And they will not live in Canaan despite their abundance if they forget the word of the Lord and forget to obey him. And so the pride of uh, chapter 8 verse 17, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth, is the alternative to blessing the Lord and receiving what he has given with thankfulness up in verse 10. So above all Israel is to remember, in chapter 8, what's the big theme? Remember that what you have and who you are is God-given. You haven't gotten it. What we have isn't our own doing. Now verse 16 adds one fascinating element. The last half of verse 16. Now let's read the whole thing. He fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you or afflict you and test you. Up in verses 2 and 3, their famished state was called the affliction or the humbling. He famished you, He fed you. That was the affliction. He famished you, and then he fed you to teach you a lesson. But here, part of the affliction is the manna itself. He fed you with manna. 
that he might afflict you and test you. In Exodus 16, Israel grumbles because she's famished. And what's the Lord's response? Okay, I'll feed you. And he showers them with manna six days a week. And on uh, Friday, they are to gather twice as much as they need, so they don't have to gather it on the Sabbath. But that affliction doesn't end with the relief of the manna. Their complaint simply changes after time. So let's go back to Numbers 11. Verses 4 to 6. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all, to, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Like the provision of manna when Israel grumbled, God does provide meat too. Jump down to verse 31 to 33. This is the Lord's response. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all that night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Supposedly the quail was so thick they just had to hit them with clubs and kill them and then they could add them to their stockpile. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers. And I have a little footnote there that says a homer was about six bushel. Sixty bushel was what the one who gathered the least was. That's a lot of quail. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Verse 33. While the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. So the people grumbled, we're hungry. Okay, I'll give you manna. Later on, the people grumble again. And by the way, the manna came before Sinai, the quail came after. So there's a stretch of time here now where they uh, really were just on their own. In fact, Numbers 10 tells us, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day, they left now, the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. So they had been eating manna for about one year-ish, roughly a year. And they say, we're sick of this manna. How about something different? The Lord sends them quail, and then he sends them a plague. But why the plague with the quail and not the plague with the manna? Well, first... Thanklessness for the manna. It's better than nothing, isn't it? And by the way, one out of at least 38 years of their eating it. They have a long way to go with the manna. Thanklessness for the manna. And second, they distrusted God despite his proven care, which was evidenced by the manna. 
And so the Lord sends the plague to punish Israel, not because they're eating meat, but because they were thankless about the manna. And I think that's important. And second, it shows that the manna and the meat were not what let Israel live. What let Israel live? What did they live on? Every word that came from the mouth of the Lord, such as, eat the manna, gather it, enjoy it, and bless the Lord for it. The same thing they were to do in the wilderness is the same thing they're to do in Canaan. But now leaving that thought behind and taking one small step forward, let's go back to Deuteronomy 8. And I want to point out a shift from Deuteronomy 2 and 3 to Deuteronomy 16. It's subtle, but I think it's significant. So in uh, verses 2 and 3, we'll, we'll quickly read those. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And, and he humbled or afflicted you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but every man, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now in verse 16, we have all the same themes brought up. He fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble or afflict you and test you to do you good in the end. So here are the themes in verses 2 and 3. He humbled you or afflicted you. He tested you. He fed you with manna that you might know the man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. In place of that lesson, in verse 16, where all the same themes are repeated, Moses does this. He changes the lesson to this, that he might do you good in the end. What is the good the spiritual lesson of verse 3 man does not live by every man does not live by bread alone but every word that comes from the mouth of god the good israel is pursuing is not material good that's not the good the lord is giving israel the good that he is giving israel is a spiritual lesson that will lead them into life that's the good so when we come to romans 8:32 The Lord works all things together for the good of those who love him. What's the good? Well, the good is spiritual knowledge. It's knowing something and experiencing something about the Lord. It's that goodness that Paul counts all things rubbish in order to attain. It's to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's the good that Moses says God is leading you toward. So all of this affliction, all of the pain you've experienced is meant to teach you this. A spiritual lesson. In this case, that everything you have and everything you are comes from the Lord. And don't forget it. Always remember that. Which I, I took issue last week with the translation of that he might humble you and change it to afflict you. Well, here's where that he might humble you is actually a good translation, right? That is a humbling thought. Everything we have, everything we are given by grace. So the suffering, um, yeah, the suffering was meant to produce this spiritual lesson. But one more thing we have to say about this. That is, Israel was not famished 
because she sinned. There, there was, the text associates no sin with Israel's starvation before God released that starvation with the manna. Israel was not restricted in diet to the manna because of sin. Judgment did break out when she received what she had thanklessly, but there was no sin attached to her restriction in diet. Both the starvation and the dietary restriction of manna were both forms of testing. In that testing, the Lord learned, we might say, about Israel's resolve to be obedient, and Israel learned about God's ways. The suffering was meant to expand the realms in which Israel was to obey. So she learns something through suffering. That lesson in suffering is meant to be applicable in times of abundance and beyond, right? Many, many lessons learned from that. What Israel learned when she was famished, she was to apply when she feasted. Now, this idea of experiencing suffering apart from sin and that suffering leading into obedience, I think, is the way we are to read Hebrews 5, verses 7 and 8. And we're out of time, so we'll end on this note. Hebrews 5, verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, first, we wouldn't think he was heard because he died. Um, But that hearing came back in resurrection form. But here, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect which is he obeys in all forms, in all fashions, at all times. But what does it mean that he learned obedience through what he suffered? That is Israel's experience. Israel learned through famine and through dietary restrictions what obedience looked like, and that was something to carry along with her through the rest of her days as she experienced abundance in the land of Canaan. Don't forget, you are what you are because of God, and you live not by the food he gives you and the abundance you have, but by obeying his word. And that comes uh, applicable at all times. So, again, no, no sin associated with Israel's starvation, no sin associated with Christ. That suffering was merely a way to expand the realms of his obedience, you might say. And God shows us what, that's looks, what that looks like with the people of Israel here. I'll be here for thoughts and questions. I better let you go. Uh, God willing, I'll see you next week.